Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your heart, to which also you are called in one body. We first looked at the fact that we're called to a new identity in one body. And that new identity gives us a new purpose. Secondly, we've been called to be joints and bands in one body, which means we are to be like the connective tissue of your physical body, for which your body could not move without. So God aims to increase the body with His increase as we become instruments in His hands to speak and to serve redemptively as instruments in His hands. Thirdly, verse 15 we are called to let peace rule in one body. The word rule we've seen, at least the same Greek word in Colossians 3.18, where Paul says again, let no man beguile you. Beguile is the same Greek word. It means to disqualify, to decide, to determine, to govern, to rule. Don't let anyone try to serve like an umpire, to disqualify you of your reward, to decide against you. Inversely, in verse 15, let the peace of God decide for you. Let it govern you. Let it rule your heart. Let it determine what you're to be about as it relates to one body. Now notice, when peace is ruling, you're bringing peace to the body of Christ for which you've been called. So that's what the word rule means. So how do we make this decision? How does peace govern? Well, the word peace, if you just look in a Greek lexicon, a biblical dictionary of biblical words, it would say peace, as it relates to salvation, is the tranquil soul, the tranquil state of a soul, assured of its salvation before God, fearing nothing from God, in terms of his wrath. Fearing nothing from God is content with its earthly lot, whatever state it is. So this peace that we're to bring to the body is justifying peace. It's the peace that is brought by the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having peace with God, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's what the word reconciliation in the book of Colossians captures. Colossians 1.20, And having made peace through the blood of His cross to reconcile. So redemption is the act whereby Christ absorbs the wrath of God and He pays the penalty, so He removes our guilt and removes the condemnation and the penalty for sin. Reconciliation is what redemption brings in restoring us to a peaceful relationship with God. In verse 21, Paul would say, And you hath he reconciled, who were one time, formerly, sometime, alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works. Yet now hath he reconciled. So how does reconciliation come to us personally? God removes the enmity and the alienation that existed in our mindset, in our disposition. It was expressed in wicked works, but the disposition of the mind was that of estrangement, the word alienation means. You remember when we spoke on that verse, we used the illustration of a wife estranged from her husband. What does that mean? She no longer lives in the house. 
She no longer participates with the husband. She doesn't speak to the husband. She doesn't communicate with the husband. She's indifferent to the husband. She no longer loves her husband. The enmity and the alienation that existed in our minds is that we were indifferent to the glory of God and we did not love God. Romans 8, 7 makes that clear. We didn't love God. We didn't enjoy God. We did not like to retain the knowledge of God in our mindset. God in an act of mercy overcomes our alienation and our enmity now through reconciliation when we come to faith in Christ. So what are the implications then? If that's what alienation and enmity is, what does it mean to be reconciled? What does it mean to have peace with God? It's that tranquil soul that assures, is assured of salvation who is now participating in the life of God, who's no longer indifferent to the glory of God, who is communicating and enjoying the presence of God, or is the Greek definition for peace goes, is content in Christ. Content is that you have enough. You're satisfied. Not only with Christ, but you're satisfied with His ruling providence in your life. Whatever your earthly lot is. As Paul would say to Timothy, the preacher, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, it's certain we can take nothing with us. Therefore, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. To be at peace, to have that inner rest, no matter what your earthly lot is. How would you be at rest or content with just having food and clothing? Because godliness with contentment is great gain. Which means godliness is rooted in being content with the gain of who God is. When God is all in all, or Christ, as Colossians 3.11 says, when Christ is the source of your peace and rest and contentment, when we are being satisfied in Christ, who He is, that peace then empowers us to have a contentment with food and clothing, with whatever we have. The writer of Hebrews would say in 13.6, Let your conversation be without covetousness, love of money, but be content with such things as you have. How could you do that? How could you be free from the love of money and have contentment? Because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that you may boldly, confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man can do unto me. Contentment, rest, peace in the fact that God is with you. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Empowers us to know that God is our helper in such a way that whatever man says to, to make us afraid, if you keep saying that as a Christian, we're going to take your job away. How can you boldly speak in ways that God wants you to speak in every context of life? When men will threaten you to take your livelihood away, to take your possessions away. Contentment, rest, that inner peace that's objective because of what Christ has accomplished and who He is for us, empowers us to say, the Lord's my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So this objective ruling peace 
We are to bring to the body. What are the implications of that? First, it means we are no longer asking our relationships to provide that contentment. We are no longer asking the church, the pastor, the members to be my source of peace. We're no longer asking or demanding or requiring that our marriage be the source of contentment. We are no longer asking, demanding, or requiring our children to be our source of contentment. We're no longer asking relationships to be our Messiah. We're not asking people to be a substitute for Jesus Christ because He is our peace. And assured of our salvation in Christ, which we're to pursue, fearing nothing from God because His wrath has been satisfied, we are to have contentment, be satisfied with Christ in such a way spiritually that we're not asking relationships to provide that contentment. Now what if we do? And of course we have, haven't we? What happens when you ask a relationship like the church to be your peace? You'll leave it. You won't stay at that church. It's just not satisfying. I'm not suggesting there's never a reason to leave a church. But not for this reason. Because you're expecting the church to be the source of your contentment, your peace, your rest. And when it's not, you leave that church. Or you leave that marriage. Because the marriage is no longer satisfying you. And you're asking the church, you're asking the marriage, you're asking some person, some relationship to be what Christ alone can be to you. He is all in all. And only when this peace is ruling in our hearts... Can we bring that peace to the church in such a way that now we are speaking out of that peace? We are serving out of that peace. And it's independent on how we're treated or how our earthly lot may be going at the time because Christ, whom we're complete in, is always the head that's supplying every joint and band so that we're going out in this peace to one another in a way that magnifies God and exalts His grace. So, we need to stop asking churches to be that source of peace. Implication number two, you don't need anything outside of Christ to find this contentment. And we as a church need nothing outside of Christ. How many times have you may have said, we just need more young people? No, we don't. I think that would be great. (laughs) We don't need more middle-aged families. You know, the, the middle with the young children. We don't need more of them. We don't need it. Well, that would be great to have it. Now, 59 and a half years old, this is my category. We need more older people. I think we need more older people. No, we don't. We don't need them. You need nothing to be what Christ calls you to be as a church. Nothing. Or He's incomplete. So we need to stop making statements to suggest if we only had this, if we only had this, somehow we could be the church He calls us to be. You're complete in Christ. He's all in all, and therefore you have everything you need, young person. If you're the only young person in the church and there's not a single other young person, you have everything you need to live in the body and be the kind of body Christ calls us to be. Next implication Now you can pursue peace in the body, right? 
There's not always peace in the body. There's going to be conflict in the body. Sometimes it'll be conflict between individuals. Sometimes it'll be a conflict that's just dropped down on the whole church and has a tendency to blow things up and divide people. See, when you understand ruling peace is under the ruling providence of God, you understand that there are no stones in the temple that are there by accident. Everybody's here by design. And when conflict hits the church, there is no conflict that's accidental. It's by design. And God has designed conflict for an opportunity to give Him glory and grow in our humility and grow in the gospel. But we must bring ruling peace with us so that when the conflict slams the church, we don't bolt. You know, My default mode most of the time is when I'm in conflicts, I... I don't even want to, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm leaving the room. Do you ever feel like that? That's just the opposite thing God is after. Right? God's aim is to show us something about ourselves as a church and individuals when we start to rub each other the wrong way. So when you have ruling peace and say, that, that relationship, I'm not asking it to be that for me. I'm not asking Him to be my source of peace. Therefore, when the conflict comes, you can bring peace to the relationship. See, peace doesn't mean there's no conflict. You know that. It doesn't mean all the circumstances are not rough and difficult and there's rough waters. There can be many rough waters and you still are bringing ruling peace to your marriage, to your family, and to the church because you understand that ruling providence has ordained this event for the good of the church and the good of your relationship. So we're going to move in toward one another with our peace, and we're going to work through the conflict, and we trust God will, through Christ, empower us with what we already have in Christ, everything we need spiritually. You don't need me spiritually, and I don't need you. We need each other. There are needs we give each other, but Christ is the source of our peace. And we understand that, that ruling. We're deciding on the side of peace, and we're working through conflict. We're following things which make for peace, wherewith one may edify another, Romans 14. We are following peace with all men, Hebrews 13, 12, or 12, 13. We are pursuing peace. We are, as much as lieth in us, living peaceable with all men even when they treat us wrong? How can you do that? Because I don't need that person to say how wonderful I am. Right? I don't need that steak sandwich and that glass of wine, Romans 14, because it's my liberty. I have a right to do that. I don't need that. I'm going to bring peace to my relationships. I don't need you to say kind things to me. But wait a minute. Isn't that wrong to say kind things to me and to you? Yes. What should you do? Bring your peace to the relationship. And with a steady, firm, gentle voice, you correct, you instruct, and you discipline your children. With a steady, firm, peaceful voice, You instruct, you correct, and you discipline your children. You know why you do that? Because you don't need them to like you. Is that ever a problem, parent? You want to have a relationship with them, but you don't need them to like you. What happens when that gets into your parenting? 
the child has a great day because you want to be cool and a cool parent. God doesn't call you to that. It's not whether your children... In fact, some days they're not going to like you at all, are they? That's not the point. No, I'm going to bring my peace. You bring your peace to those children. You firmly, steady, consistently. You instruct, you teach, and you discipline. Because God has called you to peace, and you bring it to all your relationships. Now, I'm not suggesting that we ever lose that peace. Of course, we do in the body. That's why we each have to keep bringing it to one another. And so we can pursue peace with one another. You can pursue peace in the body. And lastly on this point, you can be honest and transparent with one another. Honest and transparent. Does anybody in this room know your real spiritual health? I mean, really. Do brothers and sisters in churches live in churches virtually unknown? Unknown, except for, I mean, superficial, you know. I mean, Alabama won yesterday, Auburn lost. The weather's hot, the grass is dying. Work is good. That's all great. Does anybody in this room know you on a little deeper level? When we have this peace with God, we're no longer afraid because whatever I can tell you about my life that may be very hard, that maybe I need help with, that would be hard for you to know, you know what? God already knows it. I remember a long time ago, I first came to the realization, I'm open before God. I'm totally exposed. There's nowhere in my room, my house I can go. I can't be alone by myself ever except God is piercing me with His sight. And yet He loves me and has forgiven me. When we're bringing peace, when the need arises, we need to be personal with one another and say, Brother, I'm I'm having a struggle. We miss out on some of the comforts God has designed for us to experience through joints and bands because we're not experiencing that peace that assures us, whatever can, whatever can touch me today, whatever you can know about me, I'm forgiven by God. I remember years ago, must have been 15 years ago, I was listening to an interview with John Piper. And uh, he was on this interview... Uh, it was on the radio. I don't know how I found it, but I was listening to him, and he, he was telling about the fact that he was going to be interviewed, him and his wife, in this magazine, Christian magazine. I don't know if he's going to be on the front cover or what it is. And he was telling the guy, and he said, yeah, they called me and said, it's time for the interview, and I just said, I'm sorry, I, I can't do the interview. I said, what? What's up? He said, my wife and I are doing terrible. We are at each other's throats. We can't stand each other right now. I thought, oh my goodness, how was he able to confess that to the world? Because he has peace with God. Beloved, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That requires, in a setting of confidence, in a setting of the church where there's somebody you can lean on to expose yourself in some way and say, I I need to confess this. I need help. Could you pray for me? As Brother John pointed out last Sunday, that's not just physical healing, that's spiritual. 
And, and what is the context of the book of James? It's the double-minded man. And who is the double-minded man? Oh, that's the man who keeps saying everything's good, but everything's not good. That's the man whose lips are praising God, but inwardly he's being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So in chapter 4 of James, when James brings that double-minded man to repentance, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. What is the upshot in the end of the book of that double-mindedness and repenting of it? Confession to one another. Confession. Somebody's going through a trial. Somebody's going through a difficulty. And they know they're not doing good. See? Is it okay for somebody to say in this church to one another, I'm doubting my faith in Christ. I don't know if He's real to me right now. I really don't think He loves me. Have I been wrong about Christ? Does anybody have any real thoughts inwardly that you know are not right? That you just can't absolve? You can't resolve them? Even when we are comforted by God in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that comfort is so that we may comfort one another in any trial whatsoever. God has designed our trials so that then we could be a comfort in the body to one another when someone's going through a struggle where they need someone to be there to speak to them and to minister to them. And to do that, we have to bring peace the peace that is objective and that says, God knows all my sin. He knows the struggle I'm having. And here's a brother I have confidence in. Here's a sister I can talk to. Therefore, I'm going to seek that help. Now, there are parameters on that. We can't. It's not standing up in church and it's not broadcasting. You know, there's some personalities that are very easy to do that. They let you know everything. Some personalities are kind of closed-minded. Somewhere in between, we can be that to one another. So we're called to bring the peace of God, ruling peace to the body, and not asking people anymore to bring that peace, which then allows us to be this in the next verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Our fourth point is you're called to speak to one another. In fact, you're called to teach and admonish one another. That's not elders here. You're called in one body to now start speaking to one another. Speaking. Why does Paul say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Speaking and admonishing. Of course, that's the word we're speaking That's the word that produces the wisdom that we all need. Why the word of Christ? It's the word about Christ. Is Paul not saying to us that the presence of Christ is mediated through the word? It's mediated through the word. I remember years ago at meetings, weekend meetings, three meetings a day, three three services a day, three, three days, exhausting. And you would hear often the saints of God say, when they would talk about the meeting after, the Lord was in our presence. We felt the presence of the Lord. The first time I heard that, I thought, wow, what happened? (laughs) What did they see? What happened? They meant the Word mediated His presence. 
His presence was experienced by proclamation of the word. Beloved, we mediate the presence of God by speaking the word of God to one another. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2.20. He would say, The church is is being built on the the, uh, foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. A cornerstone in the old ancient masonry buildings was the most significant, important stone. Every other stone found its position with the cornerstone, and its reference was that stone. That stone meant everything in the building. The apostles and prophets have brought the word of the chief cornerstone, the word of Christ. They've deposited it in the church. We're being built on that chief cornerstone or the word about Christ. Then Paul says, in whom all the building fitly joined together is growing unto an holy temple in the Lord. All right, that's similar to Colossians 2.19. It's only when the church is being fitly joined as joints and bands is it producing growth. Coming from the head, or in that metaphor, the chief cornerstone, for which the whole Bible is the word about Christ. Then he says this, In whom also, in the chief cornerstone, we're fitly being joined, in the chief cornerstone, in Him also, we are being built for a habitation of God through the Spirit. We're being built a palace for God. Now if God is dwelling, what's happening? He's present. How is the presence of God mediated? How is it brought about? The apostles and doctrines word to you as you are fitly joined together speaking the word of Christ. Christ is mediated. He comes only through the word. What are the implications? One, we're bringing Christ to one another. Isn't that glorious? We are bringing the presence of Christ through his word as we speak it to one another. Have you ever brought the word of Christ and left him behind? I wish I could say that's never happened to me. I wish I could say a few times. There have been plenty of times I have literally brought the words of Christ. Literally. I quote them. And Jesus was nowhere to be found. His presence was not mediated in the relationship. What I brought was my law, my rules, and my regulations. And I want you to shape up and change because that's all I was after. See, when we try to fix people, when we think we're going to transform people, Christ is not there. I may even use His word, a principle, a rule, but my whole purpose is to fix you because you're not bringing me the peace I want. Though when you bring peace, ruling peace to the relationship, Now we bring Christ, recognizing you can't fix anybody. You can't fix your children, parents. You can't do it. There's something God has called you to do that you need to do. You must do it, but you can't fix them. You can't fix her. You can't fix him. Or they don't need Jesus. They don't need him. They need you. So when we mediate the presence of Christ, there's only one way He is mediated. Through the word about Christ. So it's imperative that we be a word-centered church. Now we use that word again. We pray the word. We preach the word. 
We disciple the Word. We minister the Word one to another because we want to bring Christ to the relationship because Christ can fix it, can He? Christ can redeem. Christ can transform. And we become a mouthpiece, an ambassador of Christ in reconciliation. We're bringing to the table, speaking redemptively, sometimes in a firm, steady voice, sometimes differently. But in all cases, our aim is to bring Jesus with us. Okay, what does it mean to teach and admonish then? How does that happen? Do we get in a classroom? No, this is informal. Now, it can happen in a setting like this. I I, I hope in preaching, we're we're trying to bring Christ, but it's in your one-on-one, connecting intentionally, bringing your peace, that now you're speaking to one another the truth about God. What are we speaking? We're speaking the gospel. Sometimes we as a church think the gospel is good for conversion. And we know the gospel is why I'm going to be in heaven. But all in between, our speech is very little about the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in Romans, and I want you to think about the implications of what the gospel means for life on an ongoing basis. Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God and true salvation to everyone that believeth, for the Jew first, also to the Greek. For therein... The gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith because the justified shall live by faith. Now run that backwards. If the justified are going to live by faith and they are, what do they need? A revelation of God's righteousness to live from faith to faith. Where will they find that? In the gospel, which is the revelation of God's righteousness. The elect of God will not live without the gospel. They'll perish forever. What do you mean by that? It's a revelation of who Jesus is for which God the Father gets the revelation to His people. Now, if we're going to live by faith in the Gospel, then it's not just a conversion thing and a heaven thing. It's for right here, right now. The Gospel. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1 when he started this book. Verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. There's conversion. Now listen, verse 6. Which is coming to you as it is in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. What's bringing forth fruit after conversion? The gospel. As it doth also in you since the day you heard it, and knew the grace of God in truth. Since the day you heard it and were converted to the day Paul wrote this epistle, I don't know how long that was. Let's just say it was five years. From that day to the fifth year, the gospel was producing fruit. We leave off the gospel. What happens to the fruit? It starts to dry up. So when we are speaking the word of Christ to one another, We are speaking the gospel. We are bringing the gospel to one another. Now, what does that mean exactly then? Does that mean we say, Brother, I know what will help you today. Jesus died, was buried, third day rose, and now he's in heaven. That's obviously not what Paul means, right? What is the good news of the gospel? It is the fullness of God in Christ coming to you every day to meet every need that you have. That's what Jesus purchased for you. 
as a mother, as a father, as a worker, as a student, as a child, in your marriage. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has done everything necessary to bring himself to all your relationships, to all your trials, to all that you encounter. He's bringing his fullness to help you when you rely on the gospel, the promises of Jesus Christ, and all he is for us. God is for us in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. So all throughout the Bible, the word of Christ is the message of the good news of what Jesus is for you in every heartache, in every tear, in every trial, in every joy, in every pain. It's the gospel. Now, when we are letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly and abundantly, we're bringing the message about Christ, the gospel, in a way that it's going to mediate his presence and bring the power of those promises to each other. We will experience that power, which is the power of then having joy and sorrow. It's the power of pressing on toward the high calling of God. It's the power to keep going when you feel like you want to quit because you've been brought the gospel message. Listen how Paul says in Ephesians 4 when he expands and gives more detail about the church being joints and bands. He would say, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man, according to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. So we're all arriving together to this unity. We're in, we're in one car headed to heaven. And the means of uh, becoming the perfect church, can I say that? The perfect man, that, that's not perfection, sinless. The, the mature church, the way we get there is the knowledge of the Son of God. That, we be no more children tossed to and fro. Every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, by the cunning craftiness, where they by they lie in wait to deceive. But, here it is, speaking the truth in love, we grow up into Him. Or, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly and teach and admonish. We are bringing the truth. And Christ is being mediated, His presence, as we speak to one another. And it keeps us from being taught. You ever feel tossed? You ever tempted to be tossed to and fro? God is using joints and bands to keep us from being tossed. Like children, what does that mean? In my home, almost weekly, there's a little lad that comes to my house. And when all the family's assembled, it's really quite a competition. Who's going to get the attention of this lad? One by one, somebody says, You want to go outside? Yeah, 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 yeah. Somebody says, You want to go down a little more? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have stooped to really low, low point. I use chocolate. You want some chocolate? <laughs> All right, now tell me what's happening according to that text. A child is tossed to and fro by every potential promise of pleasure. We're offering the lad our best shot at pleasure because we want the attention. What is going to keep me and you from being pulled apart and drawn into the winds of doctrine, which are not all theological in terms of having God's name on it? They promise us pleasure. They promise us joy. What does God say is going to counter that? You're speaking truth to one another, mediating the presence of Christ with the gospel reminding. 
No, Jesus is it. He, he's given you everything. You have everything you need for life and godliness. He is the satisfier. He is the joy. Stay with Jesus. And in so many words, we're bringing the gospel as we know the specific situation. We're bringing the help of Jesus and He's being mediated. Isn't that wonderful? I so want to be that. And I know you do too. And we find in Christ we can be that kind of church. We can grow into teaching and admonishing one another. And then we become instruments in God's hands. If we're keeping one another from being tossed to and fro, then what are we doing? We're helping each one another continue rooted and grounded in Colossians 1. We're helping one another not to be moved away from the hope of the gospel or to move away by winds of doctrine. Because Paul has already used these Greek words, hasn't he? In Colossians 1 and verse 28. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man, teaching and admonishing, same two Greek words, in all wisdom, in wisdom, Colossians 3.16, to what end? That we may present every man perfect, mature man, Ephesians 4, A mature, rather than what? A child drawn away from Christ. Moved away from the expectation of future glory and moved into worldly pleasures. Paul sees himself as an instrument in the hands of Christ to bring his bride to glory. Now who's bringing the bride to glory? Jesus purchased her. And Jesus will have her. But Jesus will use His Word to mediate His presence to help us hang on. We are really instruments in God's hands when we're speaking this eternal truth that is sustaining, that is encouraging, that is nurturing, that is supplying the presence of Christ and His promises that enlivens our souls and keeps us on the way in the darkest of hours, in the greatest of trials, in the deepest sorrows. We need a word of truth from heaven. And God has worked it out that He uses you. Isn't that marvelous? Uses sinners to be His instruments. So let us speak the truth to one another. So what's the next implication? Look for the opportunity. Look for someone hurting. Look for someone that needs a word of encouragement. Look for ways you can speak the gospel to one another. Will you get it wrong? Yeah. We go back to the, back to the virtues, right? Long-suffering, forbearing. You know, when I, when I try to bring the gospel, I'm insensitive and callous and I'm, I don't get it. I'm just going to... He tried. It's going to get messy. It's going to get difficult. It's not going to be perfect, sinless... But we're growing up into Him, into maturity. And God is magnified. And God is being seen as a sufficient God as these brothers and sisters who formerly hated each other and had nothing in common are coming in together into the presence of Christ and His Word is becoming central and now we're speaking that Word to one another and we're loving with it. And then Paul says, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Some differences of opinion, where to put wisdom. You can tell I put it 
in connection with teaching and admonishing because that's where Paul put it in Colossians 1.28. He sort of set the precedent, I think, to say, you know, teaching and admonishing in all wisdom. Some people say the wisdom needs to be connected with the Word of Christ and the teaching and admonishing is in singing. Now, they both can't be true, but they both can work. And we do speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but what I want to point out here is that how do you know you're making melody in your heart to the Lord? How do you know that? I hope it's not because of the way we sound. <laughs> you know, there's a song we didn't quite get right there earlier. And sometimes I'm off key, sometimes I'm on the wrong page, the wrong line. So I don't think it's when you're accurately on key. I, I think we should strive to do that, be accurate, get on key, and sing. That would be good. And it's not how loud we are. I love it when we're loud and music's peppy and I enjoy that. But when is it that we know we're singing with grace in our hearts? Well, when the Word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, it's shaping your heart in the worship of song. We can be the best, we can be the, uh, a choir that sounds outstanding. More and more sometimes churches hire unbelievers to play the piano in the church. And they are outstanding. But guess what? No grace in the heart. No grace whatsoever by their own profession. No grace. So we could sound wonderful. But it would be better if we had to choose to sound terrible but have grace in the heart which would mean the Word of Christ is being mediated and dwelling us in us in such a rich way that it gives grace and joy in our hearts to sing out to the God of heaven. You ever had that experience? I know you have. It's just one of those moments you're just singing out and, and maybe it's off key. And maybe, you know, I do more screaming than singing anymore, but it's just like your heart is overflowing with joy and grace because the, the God, that's redeemed you. The Savior that is being mediated through the songs is the Savior that you love. And it fills your heart with joy. Is anyone married? Let him sing songs. So let us sing. Let us pray. Let us ask God to be with us in such a way that when the Word of God is dwelling in us, which means we have to be students of the Word, right? That overflow of that Word comes out in worship and singing. Yes, we trust accurately and on key most of the time, but it's singing with grace in your heart. Paul said in Ephesians, with melody in your heart unto the Lord. And finally, the last point, verse 17, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now this is the bridge verse. This is the verse that bridges the gap between church at large and now getting into the components of the church, which is families, in the church, right? Because now he's going to break it down further and say, what should we be doing in our homes that works out in church life? And this is the verse that bridges the gap. So you're called in one body to surrender everything to Jesus Christ. Your life, your words, your words are not your own. They belong to Him because He purchased you with His blood. 
He owns you. So what comes out of the mouth is His. That's why the psalmist said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my strength. Meditations in the heart gives rise to words out of the mouth. Let them be acceptable. You own my heart. You own my life. You own my body. You own my words. That's going to take real work, isn't it? The work of grace is not complete in us. We are surrendered in one body. We surrender our lives. We surrender all we are to Christ. And then what? Now we surrender to one another. Isn't that the point that Paul has been making? I don't mind surrendering to Christ, but I'm about surrendering to you. Isn't that what God is after? God is all in in your life, beloved. He is all in. He's not half-hearted towards you. He rejoices over you with His whole heart. His whole passion is in it for you. And He's not after a half-hearted surrender. He wants your whole being to be committed to His purpose in the world. To the intent that now the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. The spectacular, glorious wisdom of God is known through you only as you surrender. You surrender all to Christ and surrender to being what He calls you to be in this body. Now, that doesn't negate the relationships that are going to follow in verse 18, does it? But this is all connected with the church and what God is doing in the world. Whatsoever you do, and whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So being surrendered to Christ, surrendering all to Him. My life is His. My relationships are His. You don't own a single relationship that you're in. You don't own your marriage. You don't own your kids. You don't own any relationship in this church. Jesus Christ owns it all. When you approach your relationships in life and church and family that way, it takes you off of your agenda and what you want those kids to be and what you want this marriage to be, and it puts you on His agenda. What does He want me to be to my husband, me to be to my wife, me to be to my parents and my parents to the children, and what does He want me to be to church? That requires a surrender. And so, Jesus owning everything, we are speaking, we are acting, we're doing everything for the glorious, wonderful, matchless name of the Lord Jesus, and we're giving thanks to God by Him. That's the second time Paul has mentioned thanks. We're to be thankful in the body. We're to thank God for every stone that's here, every member that's here, even the ones like myself that can be kind of irritating and frustrating at times, right? Every stone we're thankful for, every stone that belongs to Christ has a right to be in the body. And we're giving thanks in everything and for all things in the name of Christ Jesus. And we're thanking God by Him. And now Paul next will begin to talk about relationships in marriage, family, and in the workplace. And then he'll end in chapter 4 with giving us parameters on evangelism for the body. Chapter 4, verse 2, he will then give us parameters, guidelines on how we should think about evangelism in the culture as we create a culture of evangelism we trust in the church. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Bless us, Lord, to have the the peace that comes from you. May we seek assurance of our own salvation and then fearing nothing of your wrath because it's satisfied. Let us be content in such a way that we're bringing to the relationships the peace that you alone can give, having reconciled us by the blood of the cross. And may that peace be such that we're not asking people any longer to be what Christ alone is. And Lord, help us to mediate Christ, to bring Christ to the relationships, to bring Him to the church in our words to one another as we speak the truth in love. And then we ask, Lord, that from the truth that we're speaking, may we be joints and bands built up like a palace for God, where your glory would be recognized and seen and known in a culture, Lord, that's confused, in a culture that is seeking fulfillment in ways that will never work. They are seeking fulfillment in identifying and expressing their own distorted desires, which we once upon a time did, Lord. But now you have revealed the glory of Jesus Christ. And we pray that the world would see in churches all over the globe a new identity, a new community, a new connectiveness, a new way of speaking, a new peace, a new surrender that in such a way would draw them in to ask questions of the hope that is within us. It would draw them in to see these people really are satisfied and they have nothing in common. To, To draw them in to see, Lord, that Jesus Christ is all and in all. And it's His name we pray.